occasionally do some light housework. Now, don't get excited. I'm, I'm, I'm not that good of a guy. I don't do it a lot. Whoa! I literally almost walked off the front of the stage. But occasionally I do a little housework, uh, including my own laundry. Um, and last night I needed to wash a pair of black jeans that I was going to wear this morning. And uh, I saw that uh, we had our grandkids over, and I saw that uh, uh, the younger three grandkids, their coats had gotten pretty dirty. So I thought, well, I'm going to throw those in with my jeans and a couple other items to make a load out of it. Um, there are a few things that, that led up to the fact that I'm not wearing those black jeans this morning. Um, one of them is that um, four- and five-year-olds cannot reach, they're three feet tall, and they cannot reach a hook that coats go on that's five feet up. They just can't reach it. So those coats at their house often end up on the floor near the front door. Second fact is that uh, they have a cat. Cats love little kids' coats that wind up on the floor. They love to climb inside of them and curl up and spend the whole night there all the time. Cats shed. Having not a lot of experience doing laundry, I was not aware of the fact that a coat stuffed full of shed cat hair when put in the laundry, will automatically, somehow magnetically, I don't know what it is, transfer every single strand of that cat hair onto black pants. I went to get those out of the laundry. In the middle of the night, I got up to put them in the dryer. I pulled those things out, and they were coated, coated in cat hair. Kathy might know how to fix this. I have no clue. I put them in the dryer, thought that would knock them off. They looked worse when they came out. I, I just don't understand it. If you know how to fix that, please tell me after church today because I I, mean, I don't know. I just don't know what to do about this, and it was uh, it was a pretty pretty bad situation for me. I mean, not you know, no big deal, but it's like ah, what happened to these? Over the years that I've been in ministry, I've had a number of people just in casual conversation um, ask me what the hardest part of doing ministry is. Now, some might think that uh, the hard parts were like when uh, we had the mentally ill gentleman several years back this time of year in nearly this type of weather. Uh, in our back parking lot trying to break into cars wearing nothing but a pair of long john pants. Um, that's, that's an odd part of ministry. I'll, I'll, I'll give you that. But it's not particularly hard. Some might think that it's calling on those who have lost a loved one or who are terminally ill. And those times can be hard. But sometimes they're very rewarding as occasionally... I have a chance to bring some comfort to those folks from God. There are other aspects which aren't the best parts, like answering phone calls at 2 a.m. because something tragic has happened. Without a doubt, however, the hardest part of ministry is dealing with people 
with unreasonable expectations. Now, don't misunderstand. I have many, many times fallen on my face and fallen below very reasonable expectations because I am a flawed human being. But sometimes people have big asks, which I then have to deflate. Now, sometimes these are humorous, at least to me. Like there was a time here at this church several years back where somebody called up and said, hey, um, we would be interested in having you do our wedding at your church. These are people I've never met before, but uh, they, they'd been in our building before and they like it. And they thought, hey, you know, let's, let's, let's see about having our wedding at that church. And uh, so I said, okay, well, the first thing that we should do is check the schedule to make sure that this is something that's doable. I mean, there might be an activity already planned on that day. And they told me the date, and I looked it up on the calendar, and I said, um, that's a Sunday morning. And they said, yeah. I said, well, we're kind of busy then. And they said, doing what? Maybe they were Seventh-day Adventists. I don't know. But it was like, folks, uh, <laughs> that's, yeah, that's not going to happen. Uh, other times, when people have had uh, unreasonable asks it's not been humorous. There was a time at another church when an elder's wife had expected the church to put on a funeral dinner for her cousin. Now her cousin lived in the next town over and had never set foot in our church. But she had higher expectations for how her family should be treated than for the rest of everyone. And the ladies who put on those dinners, they came to me and said, Kevin, we don't think this falls within our, our you know, domain of what we, we should be expected to do. We've never even met this person. Why are we uh, going to have to come in? And they, I mean, they used their own money and their own time and efforts. And, um, and I said, no, that's, that's not reasonable. We're, we're going to say no to that one. And when that elder's wife found out about it, she came to, on Sunday morning, she came to the classroom where I was teaching an adult Sunday school class, barged in and started screaming at me. And uh, I said, I'm trying to have a class here. Can we talk about this later? And she said, no, we're going to talk about this right now. And we went down to my office where she proceeded to berate and scream at me for an hour because she had unreasonable expectations about how her family should get better treatment than anybody else. There have been many times when people took issue with my sermons because they didn't like to hear what the Bible had to say on a certain topic. Usually, usually, this is because their emotions about a loved one overrode their willingness to submit to God's Word, even when God's Word is very plain spoken. And sometimes those can be a little bit hard. But the hardest sermon that I ever preached wasn't on a Sunday morning. It was in a funeral home, and it was in the middle of the week. Now, it wasn't the time 
that I preached a funeral sermon to a family who they told me they were absolutely certain that their uncle who died was going to hell. That wasn't the hardest one. It wasn't the time that I got hired just kind of like, you know, hired gun type of uh, the, the, the funeral home had called me and said, hey, we got some people here that want a funeral. They don't have a church. Would you be willing to come in and, and uh, preach uh, the, the funeral here? And I said, yes. And I went in, and it was a group of bikers. And uh, they were rowdy and inappropriate and really, really misbehaving during the funeral. But I found that to be actually a good opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with a bunch of people who probably had never heard it before. So that was not the hardest one. No, the funeral that I preached that was the hardest that I've ever done in ministry was when I preached the funeral of the daughter of a good friend. I had gotten a call several days earlier. Sorry. Her estranged husband had asked her to come and meet. They were going through a divorce. And he called her up, and after, you know, earlier in the week they'd had loud arguments, he called her up and said, look, um, let's just be rational and get this settled. We'll, we'll hammer out the details for, you know, the house and the kids. They asked her to meet him at the house. When she arrived there, she had her two boys caught in the backyard, which was good, because when she walked in the door, he shot her twice with it and then turned it on. This funeral was difficult enough in that aspect. Everybody there, including myself, was filled with tears the whole time. It was a really, really hard time for everybody. But that wasn't the hardest part. It wasn't as though I were pe- preaching the funeral of an unsaved person either, because she had been raised in the church. And she, when she started to go through this difficult divorce, had come back to the church and been immersed just a few weeks earlier, which gave a lot of comfort to a lot of people. That was actually a great relief. No, the hard part was when I was the one who had to be unreasonable. I was being unreasonable in what I was asking of them, especially from my friend, her mom. Sorry. Was it unreasonable in the fact that it was difficult to understand? No, it was very clear to understand. Was it unreasonable in that it wasn't a biblical thing? No, it was quite biblical. Was it unreasonable in that no one there, including me, wanted to do it? Yes, especially at that moment. And it was unreasonable in that probably no human being could do it on their own. At least I don't think that it's possible without the grace of God. What I asked them to do was forgive him. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew 18. We're going to first do verses 23 through 35. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master 
master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Most people who have studied the Bible for any significant amount of time understand this parable to be an analogy of the difference between the debt which people, you and I, owe to God and He forgave us. And the debt that others owe to us, which is small by comparison. It isn't a monetary debt, but they use the, Jesus uses that device in this parable to show the immense difference in the wrong that is done between us and God and other people to us. If this were money, as it is used in the illustration, and if it were converted to today's, which you really can't because the economic systems just aren't the same, but the closest that you could get would be to say that what the person owed to the king was a about $6 billion, give or take a couple million. An unthinkable debt. It's a hyperbole, an astronomical amount over and above what anything would be reasonable. It's to demonstrate the debt which virtually no one can pay at that time. The second debt, the one that the fellow servant owed to him, it was still actually a large debt. Sometimes I've heard it taught and people, people have, have uh, said that, oh, it's a, it's a meaningless small debt in its amount. But that isn't the case. It is still a lot. The amount that's there is about 20, de- 20 weeks pay for a common laborer. Now, our common laborers today make a lot more money than their common laborers back then. But let's say that if you took someone who was making the lowest amount that it is legal to pay someone in the state of Indiana, which nobody makes minimum wage in Indiana. I mean, McDonald's pays like $4 an hour above minimum wage. But let's say the debt was measured in minimum wage in Indiana. It would come out to $6,000 this debt that the the fellow servant owed. Comparatively, that's small. When you you talk about six billion compared to 6,000, yes, it's tiny. But it's nothing that I or probably any of you would just say, ah, don't worry about it. No, if someone owed me $6,000 that they had borrowed from me and they weren't paying it back, 
I would be pretty annoying to them until they started paying me back. $6,000 is a pretty substantial amount of money for probably anybody in this room. Money, however, is just the tool being used to demonstrate for comparison. The debt is sin. People sin against us all the time. Sometimes it's just a fairly minor thing. Like, there was this time, and uh, I can never remember if I've told these stories here or in Sunday school or Wednesday night. So if you've heard this before and I've bored you with it already, just be patient. There was this time in the Army when a friend of mine said, hey, can I borrow your car for a couple of hours? And I'm... (laughs) You've all heard this one? Okay. He asked to borrow my car for a couple of hours, and I said, I'm going on leave tomorrow morning. I need you to bring this car back in a couple of hours. He never did bring it back. When I finally tracked him down, after I had called the MPs the following morning when he was just nowhere to be found with my car, he said, oh, it's halfway across the military post in a parking lot with a dead battery. That was really annoying to me. I lost, like, better than half a day of my leave. I had a dead battery that needed to be jumped. Uh, There was just a big annoyance in the whole thing. That was something which I got over, okay? You just, you just, you're mad for a little while, and then you just kind of let it go. And that sort of thing probably happens to all of us on a fairly regular basis. Someone is just inconsiderate and selfish, and they make life a little bit annoying for us. Other times, the way people sin against us is pretty significant. Some of us have been wronged deliberately in very drastic and even traumatic ways. Hopefully none quite near my friend having her daughter murdered, but probably some pretty bad things. Things you don't just get over and shrug off like a friend inconveniencing you with their non-caring attitude. Here is something which we need to keep in mind. Every time that we sin against someone else, every time that we have lied or cheated or hurt or were mean or selfish, Every time that we did something deliberately to cause them some sort of pain, or even when we didn't do it deliberately, but because we were thoughtless and uncaring, every time we have sinned against our fellow person, we were also sinning against God. So while we pile up little debts, of sins needing forgiven against lots of people in our lives, we continue to pile up a big debt against God. The entire point of the parable is to say that since God forgave us our gigantic pile of debts that we owe Him, we have to be willing to have comparatively small but possibly still significance debts of sin against us 
forgiven towards other people. Now, it's been pointed out to me that while we are commanded to forgive in Scripture, we are only commanded to forgive when someone repents. And that's absolutely true. This is just the same as God. God does not offer forgiveness for sins we refuse to repent of. But here's the kicker that I don't think many people really want to hear. They're like, well, I don't need to forgive them. They refuse to repent. We can't just sit around and wait for them to repent. Sometimes, as probably all of us know, we have done things against others and been completely ignorant that we wronged them. I have been where I gradually become aware that someone's mad at me. And I don't have any idea why. Every husband in here knows this feeling. And I'm not just talking about that one. Jesus says this isn't an okay situation. If someone wronged us, we need to go to them and talk to them about it. Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Don't just be mad and say, well, they know what they did. They know that they've wronged me. They should just figure it out and come to me and say that they're sorry. I shouldn't have to tell them what they did. And that's, I'm not just talking to the wives in this room either. I'm talking to all of them. Now, God gave his word. And he gave his prophets. And he gave Jesus himself to tell us where we had gone wrong. And to call us to repentance. We can do no less with our fellow people. We have to be willing to go to them and say, Hey, I need to talk with you. There's this thing. Because... Probably like most people in this room, there's been times where you're completely ignorant that you did something. And then when they point it out, you're like, oh, yeah, I kind of did do Luke chapter 17, verses 3 through 5. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. In another recording of this command, specifically, it's an instance where Peter goes to Jesus and he says, Hey, I need some details here. I want a rule. He's like, I I need a guideline here. I don't want some vague something or other. Give me a rule. He says, how many times do I have to forgive somebody? Up to seven times? And what does Jesus say to him? Let's read what Jesus said. It's in Matthew 18, 21 and 22. It's in the verses just before our main passage for today. Then Peter came up to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Some translations 
think that this is actually 70 times 7. 490, I used a calculator. A ridiculous amount. I'm thinking if someone has sinned against you 490 times on something, they got a problem. There's something not right there. But seven is special to Jewish people. It represents completion or perfection. So 77 or even 70 times seven would mean something to them, something akin to infinity. It doesn't mean you sit there and count and you go, oh, that was 491, you're done. It means forever. You just always forgive when they come to you and ask it. Someone sins and repents to an infinite number, we must be willing to forgive them just as God forgave us. We're not required to forgive an unrepentant person. And indeed, Someone who kills your loved one and then immediately kills themselves has never expressed repentance and probably didn't repent. And in verses 16 and 17 of this chapter, it spells out that if they adamantly refuse, we should walk away and separate ourselves from them. So, should we forgive them? Yes, I think so. Even that person who is still in your life who doesn't repent, we should forgive. Why? We aren't commanded to, that I can see. So why should we? This unrepentant person who refuses to change. The reason why is because it is immensely better for you and I. I asked my friend Carol to forgive her late son-in-law for his heinous sins. I want to point something out. Her forgiving him can do him exactly zero good. He's dead. Whether or not he's spending eternity in hell is over and done and decided. But her forgiving him can do her a lot. It can take the poison that has been planted in her heart to heal it. Hanging on to that anger and resentment will only serve to harm So what does it mean to forgive someone? I mean, a lot of times we're angry with someone and we hold on to that hate because we have legitimately been the victim of something very heinous. Maybe not as much as the person in my example, but unless you've lived a very blessed life, there's probably someone who expressed some extreme selfishness toward you and has hurt you in a pretty bad way at some point in your life. In a way which they might, they don't deserve forgiveness. They deserve a great big punch in the face. Or maybe even jail time. Before I go further, I want to point out that forgiveness is not the same as being a doormat. We need not allow them to continue to abuse us in order to forgive them of the past. I got over my friend mistreating my generosity with loaning him my car. I didn't want to punch him in the face any longer. doesn't mean I'm going to lend him my car again. That would just be foolishness on my part. It means stopping hating them for what they've done. So how do we forgive? Well, first of all, after realizing 
that Christ forgave us and that by holding on to our hatred to them, we are despising what Christ has done. We should take a moment and mentally recognize that there is a need for this forgiveness. For our own sake, if not for theirs, sometimes people are like, I forgave them. What do you mean? I don't need to forgive them. I already forgave them. Maybe not. We have to take note that we need to make that mental choice to forgive them and let it. Then we have to decide that we're going to move. This has nothing to do with how we feel about that person and everything to do with an intellectual choice at first. You will likely at first find yourself being very emotionally upset with them, either maybe when you think about them or see them. You have that emotional reaction still, even after you've made that mental choice to let it go and forgive them. But you choose to not act upon that anger. You choose to act civilly toward them. Now, some might say that that's fake forgiveness because deep down you still want to spit in their face. I don't think it's fake. I think it's a process. I think it's a conscious choice to be wanting to please God and do what I should do before the emotions finally follow. I think that when we make that conscious choice, eventually our emotions will follow the mind. Eventually you find yourself hoping good things for that person who a long time ago wronged you in a pretty bad way. You may even find yourself praying genuinely that they would find Christ, that they would come to genuine repentance over all of the things in their life so that they can be forgiven by God as well. Forgiveness is something that we are required to do whenever someone is for it. Forgiveness is something that we ought to be doing all the time. Remember, this doesn't mean we have to be making ourselves available as a victim again. But we have to have the heart of Jesus Christ, who, as Kevin pointed out, died on the cross for the very people who were nailing him. Did they come to repentance? I don't know. We hear some pretty good things that one of the centurions there said. The people in your life who have wronged you will not have one moment of their day be worse off by you not willing to forgive them. But your heart will hold poison until you... God desires that all people should repent. God desires that all people should come to... And part of coming to repentance with God is repenting towards our heart. It's my hope and my prayer that if there's someone in your life who popped into your head while I was preaching this sermon and you still got your teeth kind of grinding about them, that you will at least today make a conscious choice to forgive and let that go. And that maybe not at the exact same moment, although maybe at the exact same moment, eventually your emotions will follow your your choice to follow the Lord.